Well, everyone has questions, don't we? Doesn't matter who you are or how much you know or what you've experienced in life, we all still have questions. And sometimes I think that we tend to view those people who seem to have less questions and more answers as somehow better off or further down the road of life than us. But the truth is, as the video pointed out, God designed us to ask questions. And the moment that we stop asking questions is usually the moment we stop learning. So asking questions is a good thing. It keeps us searching. It keeps us learning as long as we, of course, remain open to the answers. And uh, the further down this road of life that I go, the more I've realized that for the most part, unbelievers ask the same questions as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ. For the most part, we're asking the same questions. Uh, What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What is the the key to being happy? Is she the one for me? Is is he the one for me? What's going to happen tomorrow? Should I take that job? Should I switch careers? Should we buy that house? How many kids should we have? Should I retire? How should I spend the rest of my life? Right? These are these are big life questions that everyone asks. And you've probably heard people say that the difference between believers and unbelievers is that believers know where to go to get the answers. And and that's true because if you truly know Christ, then you know that he is our supply. He provides us with answers to every need. Philippians 4.19 says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, There's a much bigger question that we should be asking, and I fear that for the most part we're not asking it today. Neither unbelievers or followers of Jesus Christ. I'm sure there are some who ask this question regularly, but with even a minimal amount of awareness and one good look around at the state of our society and much of the church today, and I think it becomes painfully obvious that we are not asking the most important question of all. And I'm going to make you wait to the end of the message before I tell you what it is. Because Daniel demonstrates for us in, in chapter 2 of his book the sweeping impact that the answer to this question can have in our lives. And so as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about the biggest question of all. It's the question that few people, I think, consistently ask, and yet the answer to it will guide you through the greatest needs of your life. So we have a lot of ground to cover because this chapter is a bit lengthy, but as a general rule, I think it's better to read larger portions of Scripture when we study rather than less because we stand to gain a far greater understanding of what is happening in the text when we read the narrative as a narrative, when we, when we read the story as a story, rather than breaking it up into such small pieces that even though we may glean some great concepts or ideas for life, Uh, we may at the same time be sacrificing the bigger picture that the text is trying to teach us. Growing up as a kid, I remember the pastor often would take a verse or even a portion of a verse and just break it down for an hour. And and that can be good, but we can also be missing the bigger picture when we do that. So we really should always remember anytime you read your Bible that this is one big story. It's one big story that is being told through a compilation of many smaller stories that all fit together. It's one of my favorite parts about Scripture, the the grand, sweeping, epic nature of the whole story that we get to explore together through these smaller scenes that we look at each week. And so I don't ever want that sense of story, of journey, of wonderful adventure that we find in the bigger picture to be lost in my teaching of it. 
Okay, and so with few exceptions, as most of you probably know by now, we generally try to tackle entire chapters or longer sections within a chapter when we gather here each week, unless, unless there's a singular and particularly theologically challenging smaller portion of a text, then we'll, we'll park it on that a verse or two for, for the day. But today, we're going to read through chapter 2 because of this great question that needs answering. And it it truly is the biggest question of all. All right, so let's turn there together to Daniel chapter 2, and we'll start off reading the first two verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So the king's having some pretty significant dreams, obviously, that are troubling him to the point that he can't sleep. And so all of his best men are brought in to try and solve this great riddle, the answer uh, to these vexing dreams that the king is having. And these are the pros. This is the king's dream team, literally in this case, uh, which is made up of most, uh, the most talented spiritual advisors that a pagan king could ever hope for. Men from different ethnic backgrounds and specialties in discerning the future and all things mystical. And the cream of that crop were the Chaldeans. And they factor in substantially in this section of the chapter. Here they, they happen to be actually a different designation of people than the, the Chaldeans in chapter 1. In case you were wondering, um, they may have been of the same race, but they would have been a subset of the tribe of people ethnically known as Chaldeans. So chapter 1 is referring to the Chaldean people who were of the original tribe of the Babylonian nation. Where chapter 2 is referring to a class of Soothsayers, They're fortune tellers that advise the king. Uh, and they may well have all come from the Chaldean tribe ethnically, which would explain the same name being used for both groups of people. Uh, just as the Magi all came from the Medes, uh, who we refer to today as the Kurds, many of whom still live in Iraq, by the way, which is where Babylon was located in modern-day Iraq. In fact, one of Saddam Hussein's former palaces overlooked the Babylonian, Babylonian ruins. It's a fascinating, you can read about it today, it's a fascinating story. And so these Chaldeans were the very best that the world had to offer as far as the king was concerned. And so he calls in these big guns, the, the heavy hitters, to answer some very important questions. Namely, what are all these dreams I'm having about? All these dreams that are keeping me awake at night. Nebuchadnezzar may not have been a follower of God, but he knew enough to know that these were really important questions that he was asking and they needed to be answered. So let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verses 3 and 4. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. So here comes the best of the best. The Chaldeans to the rescue. Finally, the king is going to have some answers. All that he needs to do is describe the dream to them and they will give the king everything that he's asking for. Right? What a lucky guy to have these great and wise men at his disposal. And as a side note, from chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, the original writing is in Aramaic 
rather than Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the Babylonian Empire, uh, and because the subject matter in this portion of the book was more universal in nature, it may have made more sense for Daniel to write those chapters in Aramaic and then switch back to Hebrew for the prophetic portions that address Israel more specifically. Um, There are also some scholars that say the Aramaic portions may have been written in Babylon and the Hebrew sections written in Israel, but we don't actually know that for certain. What we do know is that these so-called wise men These magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and especially the Chaldeans were on the scene and ready to save the day. Or were they? Let's keep reading as the plot thickens. We'll read verses 5 through 11. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Just in case you were wondering how the king was feeling about the matter. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And I love the way they just breezed right past what he just said. Verse 7, the answer, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the, the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. That's probably the most correct thing these men have ever said. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And we'll come back to that last verse in just a moment as it holds really significant prophetic implications for both the false gods of the Babylonians and the work of Christ some 600 years later. But first, what we're witnessing here is the undoing of these great and wise fortune tellers who are supposed to have all the answers. They're finally beginning to lose at their own game. You see, the king isn't stupid. He can see right through their stalling to come up with an interpretation for his dream because obviously, if they have the supernatural ability to interpret the dream, they should have the supernatural ability to to see the dream as well. And the king calls them on it and he demands that they tell him the dream first so that he can trust that the interpretation is true. And so, knowing good and well that they couldn't do it, they try to make this case that it's not actually that they're incompetent, Rather, it's the king who's being unreasonable. And their best explanation for that not only demonstrates the impotence of their own gods, but it is a foreshadowing of the Christ. As they say, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And not only do we not see their gods showing Nebuchadnezzar anything, but 600 years down the road, we see the one true God indeed dwelling in the flesh. The one place that the Chaldeans said God could never be. In John 1.14 it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Which is exactly what the Chaldeans just happen to be running short of when their king needs it the most. Grace and truth. And as impressive as their failure is here. 
The king's response is even more impressive and quite horrifying, actually. Okay, Ancient uh, eastern tyrants were famous for their cruelty in that day, particularly the Assyrians and Persians. Uh, they were notorious for these really barbaric punishments. And what they would often do when they would threaten someone being torn limb from limb, they would take four trees that were close together and they would bend the tops of the trees all the way down to the ground and tie the four treetops together. And then they would take the person and tie one arm to one limb and another arm to another treetop and another leg to a treetop and another leg. And so the four limbs of the person were tied to the four limbs of the trees. And then they would cut the rope that held the trees together. And of course, those four treetops would spring upward and outward and the person would literally be ripped limb from limb. I don't know who had the job of having to climb up there later and get the pieces down, but you know, it's pretty hard to think about. But the point is, this was no idle threat from Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't just expressing his frustration. He was going to make good on his promise. And remember, this was only the second full year of his reign. He was still a young guy. Uh, in fact, these Chaldeans and magicians and enchanters and sorcerers were probably all much older men than the king because they served Nebuchadnezzar's father before him. So there may well have also been an element of testing their loyalties here with the option for Nebuchadnezzar uh, to clean house. If you th that happens today. If you think about North Korea and the young guy comes in and takes over for his father, and what did he do just a year or so ago? He had several of his, those high generals executed because he didn't trust them and their loyalties to this new uh, regime. Okay, So Nebuchadnezzar is giving himself that option here to replace them with his own wise men that he was grooming. Many of them, we know, came from the Hebrews, which would explain why Daniel and his friends weren't in this meeting to begin with, because they hadn't yet been given official capacities as advisors since the king's father's men were still filling those roles. And so Nebuchadnezzar has just laid down the gauntlet with his advisors under the very real threat of horrible death. And they, they still can't produce anything. Even when their lives depend on it, they got nothing. They can't come up with an answer. And it's a great example of the fact, and it's the first point in our outline, that no matter how hard they try, unbelievers cannot produce the answers to life's biggest questions. Those who are not following Christ may offer a lot of talk, a lot of possibilities, and a lot of theories to address life's biggest questions, but they cannot produce the answers. And yet, how many believers, how many of us, I, and I include myself in this question, how many of us have spent time and money and resources and energy and emotion and passion and drive and effort searching for answers from everyone and everything but God at some point or another in our lives? There have been plenty of folks, believers over the years, who've come to me for counsel, and I've been guilty of this as well, by the way, who come in and explain everything that they've tried to deal with some great and vexing question in their life. What should I do about my kid who's out of control? How do I deal with my spouse when, when we seem to constantly be at odds? What should I do about this situation at work or with my neighbor or this friend that I'm having such a terrible time with? And quite often, I'll get a long explanation of everything that's been tried so far to no avail. And usually at the point that they come to see me, they're understandably exasperated at the situation. And they're really asking for some answers and some guidance, which is good, by the way. We're supposed to seek wise counsel. Proverbs 19.20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. 
So seeking advice from other believers is a good thing, but not to the exclusion of seeking the will of God on the matter. And that's confirmed by the very next verse in Proverbs 19.21. It says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And yet when I ask folks that come to me these, uh, with these questions, have you been seeking God about it? They'll often say something like, well, yeah, I've prayed about it. But look, look, saying a prayer and making a request is not the same process as seeking God for an answer in deep and sustained prayer. Those are two different things. And we'll see more about that in just a minute in our text here. But the point is we can search all that we want to. We can search all that we want to for a solution to our problem from those who rely on human wisdom and ingenuity. We can put all of our faith for the answers that we need in the very best that the world has to offer, just as Nebuchadnezzar was doing here. But at the end of the day, even if those answers bring temporary comfort, they will not ultimately provide the solution that we need for the answers that will guide us to the best that God has available for us in our future. Because the world cannot produce the answers to life's biggest questions. It's not going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar's beginning to realize that here. So let's keep reading and we'll see how the story unfolds. We'll read verses 12 through 18. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So he's com completely unhinged at this point. He's infuriated with these guys. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king of the captain's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared, that's significant, he didn't ask, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. And then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So this is a really insightful portion of the story here, and it demonstrates our second point today, which may come as a surprise to some of you, which is the fact that believers cannot produce the answers to life's biggest questions. We can't. We may be the recipients of some of those answers. We can certainly share those answers with others, but we cannot produce them or generate them. We're certainly not the source of them. And we see that here with Daniel. Interestingly enough, as the king's captain is rounding up all the wise men in the city to have them killed, and it appears that uh, this is at least one example of a situation where it would really pay to not be the smartest guy in town. Uh, but unfortunately for Daniel and his friends, they were. In fact, last week we saw in Daniel's own words, he said they were 10 times smarter than all the other wise men around. Probably wishing he hadn't said that at this point. So here comes the king's captain, Arioch, who among other things was the chief executioner. Now, if you read it in the, the Greek Septuagint translation of this passage, it says that Arioch was designated as the king's chief butcher. Definitely not the guy you want to show up at your door on official government business, right? But he does show up to lead them to certain death. Why? For being so smart. 
They're, they're about to be killed for being the best and brightest that Babylon has. I'm thinking with policy making like that, it's a wonder that Babylon never really made it. <laughs> you kill your smartest people. But Daniel does something truly impressive when informed that he and his friends are about to die. He has the presence of mind to very calmly and confidently ask the king's captain to explain this decree. It says, Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Why is the decree of the king so urgent? The word prudence there is the ancient Aramaic word itah. It means counsel. The word discretion in the same verse is the Aramaic word to aim, which means decree. That funny little at sign is actually just what you get out of transliteration from ancient Aramaic into the English. But it's pronounced to aim. It means to decree. So Daniel counsels the chief executioner to declare to him what the king was so worked up about. He doesn't sheepishly ask or request for some answers. He actually counsels the executioner to declare. To decree, declare to me, what, what's the big deal? What's going on? Such tremendous poise and confidence from Daniel. But it wasn't arrogance, as he clearly doesn't know ahead of time what's going on. God hasn't revealed to him yet that Nebuchadnezzar was going to order all of the wise men to be killed. Sometimes believers don't have all the answers. But the real significance of this part of the text is the fact that even though Daniel doesn't understand what's happening yet, and even though he's just been informed that he and his friends have been given a death sentence, he remains completely calm and confident to the point that he counsels the chief executioner to explain the decree, which would have been, by the way, highly unusual in this time period uh, for someone to um, not only address the king's captain directly, you typically wouldn't do that if you'd been condemned to death, but even more so for the king's captain to oblige him. Okay, it really speaks to the favor of God on Daniel's life and the confidence that Daniel had that God would provide even when Daniel didn't have all the answers. And David Gusick wrote that in one sense, crises does not make the man. Instead, they reveal the man. I think that's true. Clearly, Daniel's medal was being revealed here. I heard a pastor on the radio the other day who was preaching. I think it may have been Stuart Briscoe, but I'm not sure, so forgive me if I'm giving credit to the wrong place. But he said, if you want your faith to grow, he said, if you want your faith to grow, you have to be willing to allow your faith to be tested. If you want your faith to grow, you have to be willing to allow your faith to be tested. And we see Daniel's medal being tested here. Sometimes believers don't have the answers. But Daniel takes it up a notch even further because once the king's captain explains the situation, Daniel, who doesn't have the answer that the king is looking for, he doesn't have the interpretation, does something astounding. Daniel makes an appointment with the king to deliver the answer that the king is looking for, the one that has vexed him so much that he's willing to kill all of the wise men in Babylon for failing to deliver on. And here is Daniel with absolutely no idea what the dream is or what it's about, calendar planning with the king so that he can hook up with him and deliver the answer that he doesn't currently have. Amazing. Now, if the king is willing to kill all of these people who openly admit that they can't give him an answer, what do you suppose that he'll do to a guy who says that he's going to show up with the answer, even though he doesn't have it yet, if Daniel's unable to provide the answer that Nebuchadnezzar is looking for? Think about that. Talk about pressure. But Daniel is Mr. Cool, Calm, and Collected. 
Not because he has the answers, but because he knows who does. And I love this part of the story because Daniel goes home and he says to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his three best friends, Hey, fellas, how was your day? Mine was pretty good. Uh, yeah, by the way, we need to pray about something tonight. Uh, this, this little mystery that needs solving. And um, I want your help you know, to pray and ask God for the answer. And, and just to be clear, if we don't get the answer that we need, we're all going to be ripped apart limb by limb from the king. I don't know if they put some soft music on at that point, you know, like we do when we pray together, keep, avoid the awkward silence. But I can guarantee you that no one was dozing off in that prayer meeting. This was some deep, focused, sustained prayer going on in that house that evening because they understood the gravity of what was at stake. In fact, it wasn't just their lives. Uh, it was the lives of many point, people at this point hanging in the balance and they knew that they didn't have the answers that they needed for their lives or the others to be spared. So they turned to the only one who did. Look, we really should take our cues from Daniel and his friends here because I think as Christians, I think we far overestimated our abilities for far too long. I hope it's okay for me to say that to you. But I think we far overestimated our own abilities for far too long. We really must recognize that all true wisdom and understanding and knowledge and truth does not originate with us. And then we need to be honest with the rest of the world about that because there are just simply times when we don't have the answer. And it is in those times that we need to express that with honesty and integrity. Of course, we know that God has a purpose in everything, right? Even in our suffering. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And we know that He works all things, even our suffering, together for our good. Paul tells us that in Romans 8, 28. But even armed with that knowledge, it is just as true that we cannot always provide an answer to everyone who asks big questions in life. Like, why am I going through this? We know that God has a purpose for everything, but we don't necessarily know what that purpose is. And what people do not need to hear from us when they're suffering is some kind of oversimplified pat answer to calm their fears and cover our own uncertainty. That is not what people need. No, it's far better for us and them when confronted with questions to which we have not the answers to simply tell the truth and say, I don't know. Much better to do that than it is to try and fake our way through it. And by the way, that in no way negates the power of what we are able to provide in those moments or our responsibility in those moments. Because even though we may not know the answer to every question, in times of dire need and great pain and suffering, what we can always offer to others is the love of Christ that resides inside each of us and the reassurance to those who are hurting that they're not alone. Because even though we don't have all the answers, we are going to walk through those dark shadows and deep valleys with them every single step of the way. As a, a, a pastor and friend, I've walked through relationship horrors. Uh, 
more horrendous situations with marriages and divorces and custody battles than I care to remember. Situations in which I could often provide little to no answers as to why the, the other person was doing what they were doing. But when you walk with people through every dark step of those difficult journeys in their lives, the reality of Christ in your life is so often far more comforting and reassuring and needed than any answer you could ever offer them. So much more important that we offer what we have than what we wish we had. Believers don't always have the answers to life's biggest questions. And that's okay. Because we can still share what we do have. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. All right, let's get back to our story. As Daniel and his friends are praying, and we see God shows up in a big way. We'll read verses 19 through 30. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden messages. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. I love how he gives himself some credit there. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. I love that. He says, No. No, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. In other words, stop looking for answers in places where they cannot be found. No one is ever going to be smart enough to give you what you need. There's only one. That is, is who's bringing the answers. It's simply amazing. Daniel and his friends had no answers, but instead of running to the wise men and the enchanters and the magicians and the astrologers, instead of running to the world and looking for answers to their life and death situation, they ran to the only true supply. They ran to the only one who could provide the answers they needed. They ran to God Almighty and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed in deep focused, sustained prayer into the night, it says, and they didn't stop until God gave them the answer that they needed. Why? Because they understood that God alone can produce the answers to life's biggest questions. 
it makes perfect sense if you think about it, that the one who can truly provide the answers that we seek is the one who's sovereign over all of the questions that we ask. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Daniel knew well and good that the true source of answers for all of life's questions was God alone. And because he allowed his faith in the the source of all of our supply to be expressed, not only in the best times of his life, but in the worst days of his life, because of that, the lives of everyone around him were affected by it. Let's finish our story for today, and we'll see the profound effect of Daniel seeking the ultimate answer to life's biggest question. We'll finish chapter, uh, the whole chapter starting at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, like dust on the floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he's given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, meaning in you, Nebuchadnezzar, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he's bowing down before Daniel, but he's not praising Daniel. He recognizes the source 
of the answer that he's been seeking. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. It's incredible. Can you see how because of one man's devotion to seeking God that even a pagan king with all the power in the world, has a revelation of who God is at the end of Daniel's explanation of the dream. And the dream itself, of course, is a prophetic vision of the succession of four great earthly empires. The, the Babylonian Empire from 625 to 539 B.C., and then the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 to 331 B.C., and then the Greek Empire from 331 to 63 B.C., and then the Roman Empire from 63 B.C. to A.D. Uh, 476. And then, of course, uh, the coming of the messianic kingdom, which he talks about at the end, that will never be destroyed, that will, will crush and sweep away all others. It's, it's obviously good for us to understand the specifics of the dream, but many people get too hung up on these details of some of these visions and dreams, and they miss the forest for the trees. This whole prophecy, this whole chapter, is ultimately about who God is. It's about who he is, the sovereignty and rule of God, not future events. It's about who God is and the coming of Christ's kingdom, a permanent kingdom that cannot be conquered, unlike uh, even the greatest of all of these earthly kingdoms. And when we see that in the response of Nebuchadnezzar and the fact that he, even this earthly pagan king, understands the greatness of God in that moment, he said, truly, your God is a God of gods a Lord of kings, a, a revealer of mysteries, which, by the way, is the same revelation that Daniel had earlier after asking God for the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in verses 21 and 22. Daniel said, He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. In other words, He's the only one that has the answers. And the result, of course, of God revealing himself to Daniel and then to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel is not only was Daniel's life spared, but his friends' lives were spared. All the other pagan wise men's lives were spared. And Daniel and his friends were given incredible position and blessings through which they could influence a multitude of people from a king who just shortly before was ready to kill them. All because Daniel ran to the true source of answers for these life and death questions first. He didn't check with the Chaldeans first or bounce some ideas around with his friends first. No, he, he grabbed some other men of faith and they took it straight to God. And so instead of treating God like a last stop in our time of trouble and after we've exhausted all the other options that the world has to offer, he should be our first stop. Our number one priority, our chief concern, the very first person that we run to when trouble comes. And yet, so often when we do pray, uh, we treat God like some kind of supernatural vending machine. You know, where you, you put a little prayer request in and you hope something good pops out. No, He alone is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He's ordained every single one of your days, even the bad ones. Read Psalm 139. He knows what's going to happen to you next. But here's the thing. He not only knows that. He knows what you need 
for what's coming next. And not only does he know what you need for what's coming next, he wants to give it to you. He has the answers for you and he wants you to have them. But when we spend most of our time and resources trying to chase down other alternatives to meet those needs first, we shortchange ourselves and those who need us the most. Because so often, I believe, we then settle for something far less than God's very best. We settle for what brings us comfort instead of what brings us what we truly need. And so the key to all of this is the questions that we ask and how we ask them. When you look at the lives of uh, Daniel and Peter and Moses and Paul and David and Mary, you find people who ask God for things just like we do. But there was a difference, not only in how they asked, which usually involved extended times of often intense seeking, but there was also a difference in the questions themselves. Because God provides answers to all sorts of questions for believers and unbelievers. We see it all through Scripture. Just as He provided for King Nebuchadnezzar with the answer He was seeking, even though Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. It's more than just about asking questions. It's about asking the right questions. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, when Simon the sorcerer heard Philip preaching the gospel, it says that Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized and continued following Philip. And yet when Peter and John show up and start laying their hands on people and and, uh, people are receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, it says that Simon offered them money because he wanted what they had. And Peter rebukes him sharply. You see, because Simon was asking the wrong questions. He was asking for something that he really wanted instead of asking for that which he truly needed. And that brings us back to the beginning of this message. What is the biggest question of all? Well, I'll tell you first what it isn't. It isn't, God, how can I have more from you? which I think is the question that we most frequently ask in one form or another. God, how can I have more from you? No, the biggest question of all, the most important question that we can ever ask in this life is, God, how can I have more of you? There's a big difference. The biggest question of all is asking God to reveal himself to us in our lives. But think about it honestly, and don't raise your hands, but how often do we simply ask him, to reveal himself to us. How many of us actually do that? How much time do we spend just meditating on the question of who God is without asking him for anything else in that time of prayer and meditation? How how much time do we spend actually in his presence just because we want to know him more and we ask for nothing else? The, The truly amazing thing is we can never spend too much time asking that question because the answer to that question is inexhaustible. We can never fully know the answer to that question because it's an endless well of beauty and wisdom and mystery and wonder and power and awe. And the more that that answer is progressively realized in our lives, the greater the depth of our experience in our relationship with Christ, the greater the fulfillment of every need and every want and every desire that we have. Why? Because He is the answer to everything that we are not. Why do you think Moses was used by God in greater ways than most anyone else in all of history? Well, at least in part, it was because he repeatedly asked that most important question. At the burning bush, after getting his instructions from God, Moses said, what should I say to the Israelites when they ask me what your name is? 
And in ancient cultures, to know the name of someone was to know something very uh, essential about them. Names in ancient times told you a lot about who that person was, the very nature of that person. In other words, Moses was asking, reveal yourself to me. From the very beginning, he wanted to know who God was. But if you look in Acts, uh, Exodus chapter 33, after following God through so many incredible events and experiences, Moses was still asking the same question. In verse 18, he asked God, please show me your glory. And God replied in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you what's going to happen to you tomorrow. No. I'll proclaim before you uh, the answer to that big question you've been at. No, he doesn't say that. I mean, at this incredibly intense moment of Moses in the presence of God, and he's just asking for God to reveal more of himself to me, what does God say? I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's who I am. In other words, Moses asked God, show me more of you. I want to know you more. After all that he'd been through, with God, he was still asking the same question just to know him. And God was still giving him the same answer. And yet each time it came in a much deeper way. Because God revealed even more of himself to Moses. Because that's what Moses wanted more than anything else in this world. He was far more concerned with knowing God than he was with what he could get from God. Moses knew that knowing God was the ultimate answer to life's biggest questions. And out of that came a life outside of Jesus Christ himself that is unequaled to this day. You see, true contentment, true fulfillment, true peace, true confidence, true power, true love, true humility. It all comes out of knowing who God is and the deeper the deeper that knowing becomes in our lives, the greater that he is revealed, manifested in us. Moses had God pouring out of him all the time because of the time that he spent asking God to pour himself into him. And likewise, the revelation of who God is became crystal clear to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, which was a direct result of Daniel's time spent seeking God himself. Because of it, Dozens of lives conservatively were spared and God's people were blessed and prospered. So look, I just want to offer a challenge to each one of us today in this church. I want to challenge each of us that for every 30 minutes that we spend in prayer asking for something more from God, why don't we start spending an equivalent 30 minutes in prayer simply asking for more of God? for a greater revelation of who he is. And then take some time to meditate on those answers that he brings because that is what will ultimately move us beyond living from handout to handout, from crisis to crisis, constantly asking God just to deliver us from our current circumstances so we can make it one more day. We need to be at the place where Daniel lived. It was a place of confident faith that before we even have the answer to the problem, we can stare the executioner, death itself, in the face and say, you just hold on a minute. I'm going to go spend some time with my God. And when I come back, you'll have the answer that you need. That comes from a deep understanding of who God is. 
not just what he can give us. I, I get up every morning and I run through my neighborhood. It's steep hills, up and down and up and down. Uh, it's probably more like controlled stumbling than it is running. But uh, I call it exercise. My neighbors call it entertainment. But anyway, I spend about 40 minutes uh, stumbling my way through the neighborhood. And, and I pray. That's my morning prayer time. And I realized at some point that I was spending that time uh, just rattling off a long list of things that I thought I needed from God. And when all of this began to become a reality in my life, I switched tactics. And I said, you know what, I'm going to spend this 40 minutes each morning simply thinking about who you are and asking you to reveal yourself in my life. And sometimes I'll take a psalm, a passage or two from the Psalms uh, that talks about who God is, and I'll memorize that on my way out the door. And then I go on my run and I meditate on that passage, or just simply ask Him to reveal Himself to me. It is a pr- profound effect in my life because I've learned to simply spend time, extended periods of time, deep, focused time just seeking Him rather than what I might be able to get from Him. I'm learning to spend more time asking, God, how can I have more of You? Because that truly is the biggest question of all. Let's pray.